the AD&D adventure Thorn of Bloodstone included pre-generated 100th level characters. With notes on running 100th level characters. That's right, you heard me. 100th level characters. Some of the advice for running adventures for 100th level characters in that adventure was to focus on endangering the PC stuff, rather than endangering the PCs. For example, destroying the wizard's spellbook. That'll probably not make you a very popular DM. But, 100th level characters? Come on, 100th level characters? What are we talking about here? 100th level characters? And now we present to you Thacko with Advantage. Welcome to Thacko with Advantage. We're two friends that have been playing D&D a long time while we both love lots of other RPGs. D&D likes to experiment with our emotions. Hi, I'm Ange. I've been gaming for over 35 years. In 2014, I started writing for Gnome Stew, and I've been running the Gnome Cast, the Stew's podcast, since 2017. And in 2021, they made me head Gnome for reasons. <laughs> and I'm Jared. I'm the review Gnome at Gnome Stew, and I've been gaming since roughly 1985. In addition to writing reviews at Gnome Stew, I've got my own site, whatdoiknowjr.com, where I write additional reviews and opinion pieces on a variety of RPGs. After we look at the games we're running in our campaign journal, we'll be looking at a new segment called Magical Tinkering, where we look at the ongoing playtests surrounding different versions of the game that are in, you know, playtest. <laughs> After that, we're going to dive into our truncated Dungeon Masters workshop on high-level play, and then we'll have some recommendations of D&D-related content for you to check out in our downtime research segment. Let me just finish up this campaign journal. My last session was a bit low-key. I was exhausted from an overloaded week at work, which unfortunately is probably not going to let up anytime soon, which is why I was planning on wrapping up this chapter of the campaign to let someone else run. <laughs> but I'm probably going to end up continuing to run through April with what I already have planned. Either way, one player was flying back from a work trip and had delayed flight due to weather. He made it to gaming, but was about two hours late. Another player had spent all day running around with his 10-year-old <laughs> at a school's Odyssey the Mind event, so no one at the game was really 100%. Honestly, if I didn't know we were going to be missing a couple of sessions in April, I might have called things off, but I also figured that this was going to be a transitional session. So we might as well go forward and figure out where everyone wants to go next. I have plans. I was seeding some plot threads for them to follow, but I never want to assume that they're going to do exactly what I want them to do. Yeah. Even though they are good players and will generally do the thing of follow the plot threads. <laughs> Picking up right where we left off, they had to decide whether they were going to try and pursue the Medusa that had Dimension Doored out of the fight at the end of the last session. Or let her get away. Rena had hit her with a mind sliver so they could follow her for up to an hour. But they were also pretty tapped out. Uh, I think between the six characters, they maybe had three first-level spells and one <laughs> second-level spell. They were all pretty hurt. Instead of pursuit, they decided to go through the treasure and take care of the people they had rescued. So... Phew. I honestly wasn't sure what I was going to do if they tried to pursue her, probably find some random map of the jungle and have a confrontation there, <laughs> and then probably not hold back on some of her big spells since they decided to pursue her, knowing how bad they were. That's always rough, though, because there are times as the DM you're like, I am so glad this villain just got to run away because this is over, and maybe they're in my back pocket from here on out, but... <laughs> 
We did run into an interesting moment with Treasure. Uh, one of the items they found was a staff of healing, and they started debating on who should get it. I barely refrained from face palming. <laughs> I had specifically put this item into the treasure for Sax the Cleric because he was kind of lacking on magic items, and I figured it would be something he would be excited to add to his repertoire and back up his healing and maybe let him focus on using his spells for the damaging spells he has. <laughs> and there the players go debating about who it would make sense to give this to. <laughs> this player, he's very congenial, very easygoing. If somebody else really, really wanted it, he would have totally let them have it. And I'm just like, you know, I love it when I put a magic item into the game meant for someone specific and you guys argue about who should get it. And one of the other players spoke up. Let's give this one to Sax. <laughs> you know, I don't have a problem when they get creative with magic items because I also put some elven chain into the treasure. And I honestly expected this to go to either Perrin, the blade singer wizard slash bard, or Vandrith, the basically dex paladin. Mm -hmm. Instead, they ended up giving it to Rena, the sorcerer, because it doesn't require a proficiency. So this basically ups her armor class significantly and makes her not quite as squishy, whereas Perrin and Vandrith are already at like 19 and 20 respectively. So it makes sense. And honestly, treasure is hard. <laughs> I never know if I'm giving too little or too much or what items are too powerful, um, but it makes the players so happy to get cool items. Um, it, it's, we'll talk about this a little later when we get into talking about the latest one D and D play test, uh -huh. but like my players definitely have way more items than the DMG says they should. <laughs> Thankfully, the five E's attunement mechanic does limit how obnoxious things can get with magic items, but I still, I want to give them cool stuff. There was a large amount of coin as well. And they ended up starting to debate whether it was actually worth taking the 7,000 copper or not. <laughs> Vandruth was playing into being the handsome but dim himbo and kept arguing that it was 7,000 coins. Of course they <laughs> needed to take it. But everyone else was like, it's only 70 gold. And he's like, but it's 7,000 coins. It's 7,000 uh, tankards of really bad ale. <laughs> <laughs> In the end, they actually decided to leave the copper behind in a chest that they also rigged with a mirror to potentially trap the Medusa if she returns to her lair. So now I have to decide if that Medusa is going to stay in my back pocket as a potential enemy or whether she comes back to the lair and falls for the trap. Uh, Rena's player actually drew a fantastic quick little comic about the Medusa coming back and finding the copper. I'll see if we can leave that in the show notes, because it makes me really, really happy. The comic definitely pushes me towards uh, voting that you should you should let her stone herself. <laughs> <laughs> it made me happy. <laughs> After that, they went and took a short rest with the people they had rescued. With the Staff of Healing, they cast a Lesser Restoration on the turtle that was still in danger of succumbing to the poison that would transform him to a brood guard. After that rest, they went out of the Yonti's lair to find a good spot to camp for the night. They didn't go far. They just didn't want to stay in the lair in case there were other Yonti out and about or the Medusa came back or whatever. They found a good spot for camping. 
And while they were camping, well, whenever they camp, I tend to roll percentage dice to see if a random encounter happens at night. Mm -hmm. My general rule of thumb is if I get 90% or more on percentage dice, something's going to happen. And I rolled a 95. (laughs) So some phase spiders decided to come at the camp for easy food. (laughs) It was a quick fight without much threat, but the players seemed to enjoy it since they had people to protect and half of them were woken up out of a sound sleep for the fight. So they didn't have their armor on or any of this other stuff. The next morning, they connected up with the drow Lucina and uh, the scouts she had brought with her to help them. She took them to the way home, which is where I am calling where her clan is camping. Now, the drow in Zendrik, at least these type of drow, there's a few different types, are kind of supposed to be nomadic. But they're also elves, so I figure nomadic for them might mean they stay in one area for five or six years and then move on to another area. (laughs) So it's not exactly impermanent structures, Mm -hmm. but it's definitely, you know, not meant to, it's not like a city or anything like that. Here they basically talked with the elder drow, were thanked for their help, got a chance to rest, and they also got a clue of where to go next. The Lost Cloister of Vleroth. It's a wild magic ruin that belonged to a powerful wizard at the end of the giant empire. And I need to find some time this week to get that statted up and set in shards so I can run on Saturday. (laughs) You have a good idea. Now you just need to implement it. Yes. Work out all the little details. (laughs) So in my campaign, we finally got to play. Yay! Our group in the uh, Midgard game is now currently at 8th level. Basically, at the beginning of this session, they could go and do whatever little personal jobs they wanted to do, because I'm completely open for them to do that. They could wait around for one of their friends that went off on a patrol trying to hunt down a dragonflesh golem that is fleeing the countryside. Or they could embark on the planar journey that they received as a mission last time around. Basically, Ivy's uh, Valkyrie ancestor was captured by Kazina's grandfather, who was a fiend, <laughs> and placed in the prison of eternal torment. And Balder sent a Ratatosk with a basically a planar token that lets them travel the planar paths and a document that they need to get filled out in order to get uh, Lady Iyer released from the Prison of Eternal Torment. We need to deal with planar bureaucracy. (laughs) Exactly. Marin, our Dragonborn Knight, was concerned about the rest of the party's survivability on the planes. Not his own, because he is invincible. (laughs) Nothing is ever going to stop him. But he is worried about everyone else, so he was concerned about uh, taking on a planar jaunt at this point in time. But the rest of the group... Kind of wants to get Lady Iyer freed. Um, The document that they have requires three things. One is a statement of forgiveness from someone that Lady Iyer did not choose from the battlefield. So they will have to go to the Evermaw, which is the plane in the afterlife in the Midgard setting where undead go. And then they need a statement from Lady Iyer's sister about her importance to the forces of Valhalla, where they will need to go to Valhalla to get that. And then they get need to get the document certified by an infernal legal clerk in the Eleven Hells. Because in Midgard, there are Eleven Hells, not nine. <laughs> <laughs> so all of the planes involved, except for the Prison of Eternal Torment, come from the Midgard setting. 
But the prison and the way the PCs are navigating the planes all come from Monty Cook Games' Path of the Plane Breaker. Ivy has a token that lets her access a path that weaves between different planes of existence. And as long as she is focusing on a plane that she wants to go to, if the path has ever gone to that plane of existence, they eventually will find it. Ivy had to make an arcana check, but that's not whether she finds it or not. It's basically how focused she is on finding the path. So she ended up rolling an extra die's worth of hours to travel on the path, which let me roll two encounters while they were wandering this uh, path between <laughs> planes of existence. I didn't do any of the um, random encounters ahead of time because I felt like improvising the other <laughs> night. <laughs> so um, the first thing they ran into was a procession of fanatics that are looking for uh, converts. And because I am a longtime Forgotten Realms fan, it immediately popped into my head, well, I could make this a deity that has something to do with Midgard, but they're on the plane. So these could be people from anywhere. So I decided to make these lost followers of Cyric from Forgotten Realms because I am really comfortable falling into uh, fanatics of Cyric and role-playing them. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta say, I never expected to come into the D and D equivalent of Jehovah's Witnesses going door to door, <laughs> and that's what this really felt like. Have you heard of the glory of the one and all? <laughs> <laughs> so that uh, encounter didn't go well for the cultists. Originally, they just were going to ask, do you convert to Cyric? And part of the problem is we don't have people that are even willing to just give lip service to saying that they did a thing that they aren't planning on doing. So because everyone was pretty adamant about not saying that they were going to listen to the good, good word of Cyric. I mean, we have a cleric <laughs> of, of the grave. We have a sorcerer that is a divine soul. We have a knight who is just two threads away from being a paladin. <laughs> no matter what he says, he is so close to being a paladin. Yeah. Kazina grew up with cultists or people pretending <laughs> to be cultists. So it's like, no, no, we, we're not going to have anything to do with this. Unfortunately, because one of Sirik's portfolios is murder, they decided to expound upon what was really great about Sirik by trying to murder the party, and unfortunately, they experienced the murder on their end. <laughs> <laughs> and then the second uh, encounter that they had, um, the encounter chart called for a giant, and I decided to use an extended giant that I have access to from other material. So they ran into a shadow giant. Shadow giants can phase in and out of reality, and they have a recharge ability where basically they can drop their shadow on people to cause damage to them. The shadow giant did not show up hostile because, you know, he was wearing his, his nice clothing and he was, he was very gentlemanly, but he wanted the PCs since they were heading to Valhalla to vouch for him so that he could enter Valhalla as an emissary. Oddly enough, everyone in the party was a little bit wary of a giant asking to get access to Valhalla. And also their insight rolls were way better than his deception check. <laughs> He was really, so, really bad at lying. Yeah. So um, he may have actually been an emissary of Loki that was trying to get into Valhalla to cause some problems. This turned into a fight, but also because he wasn't quite the zealot that the uh, cultists were. As soon as he was bloodied and he had the opportunity, he just phased out and left. I will say, even though he was bloodied, he really took a chunk out of the uh, party before he left. <laughs> 
Yeah, his his area of attack shadow thing was pretty <laughs> deadly. <laughs> yeah, if that recharged, that could be a very bad time yeah. for the party. <laughs> I d- he didn't drop anybody, but it was super close. I was going to say it did a lot of damage to most of the party, though. <laughs> I think I think Kazina was the only one who... And, and Kazina would have been the one to be able to withstand it the best, probably, because... <laughs> but she was not in the area because she did the thing rogues do and circled around him <laughs> to stab in the, in the back of his thigh. <laughs> so, yeah, he uh, phased out to another plane, and now he has to get his very nice jacket fixed. I'm sure the PCs will never run into him again. <laughs> So then the PCs finally make it to Kialoth, I believe is the proper way to pronounce it. It is the plane of battle in Valhalla. So it's basically the battlefield where all of the dead assemble every day to do their training. If you've read anything about this, especially in D&D versions of Valhalla, if you die in Valhalla, you come back. It's actually kind of not a big deal. So they ran into a Valkyrie named Tova, and she said that she was going to get them an audience with Lady Iris' sister, but they have to participate in today's training before the feast because that's when Birgit will be available. And so the group has, um, they have fought their, their morning battle so far, which is using modified barbrawls. Barbrawls are a, uh, <laughs> are a swarm that are in the creature codex from Kobold Press. The swarm of drunk humans. It's brilliant. <laughs> So they fought three swarms of Barbrawls for their first fight. This was basically the warm-up. I don't feel bad letting you know this, Ange. These will get progressively harder as the day goes on. <laughs> <laughs> um, essentially, the point of this, even if they die, they're going to come back in the evening so they can participate in the feast. But this is so they have a good story to tell. Because nobody wants to come to a feast in Valhalla without a good story to tell. <laughs> no, it was fun and it was it was really good to get to play, finally. Oh, yeah. Now, let us take a look at our new segment, Magical Tinkering. Now, let's add a smidge of evocation, a bit of divination, and a sprinkle of necromancy. Not only does Wizards of the Coast have the ongoing one D&D playtest, which had a bit of a hiccup in January for, you know, reasons, but Kobold Press is also starting to release playtest documents for Project Black Flag, which appears like it's going to be a slightly less dramatic reworking of 5e into Kobold Press's fantasy core rules. Um, We don't always want to spend an entire episode just diving into each individual bit for all of these playtests now. Those are kind of exhausting. Yeah, we did that with some of them, and I tend to do it on my blog, but I don't necessarily want to redo it on the podcast. So what we're going to do with Magical Tinkering is touch on the the, uh, highlights. And the other thing that we're going to look at in Magical Tinkering is if we did uh, manage to get... uh, playtest in using the material we're going to touch on that too. so project black flags first document highlights instead of connecting a plus one three times or a plus one and a plus two into species or background the point by or standard array is going to be a bit higher so those values are worked into what you're starting with on your character anyway which honestly kind of makes a lot of sense yeah it makes a lot of sense we could debate this stuff later. It, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I don't know if I like it, but it makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Species is being split into lineage, inherited traits, and heritage, what you learn from your culture. So you can have a human lineage that was raised by dwarves, like Caddy Bree in the Dritz books. 
They are changing feats to talents and adding a talent to each background. They are getting rid of traits, ideals, bonds, and flaws and streamlining that into reason for adventuring. I like that. (laughs) Talents are going to be organized into magical, martial, and technical and are limited by class. That I'm going to have to see how they do. Mm -hmm. There is going to be a new packet uh, released on March 17th. So by the time you hear this episode with me talking out of my face, (laughs) you will probably already have seen that playtest document. Mm -hmm. So what are your thoughts on that, Jared? I already, I I couldn't help but jump in there. (laughs) I do kind of like if you're not going to connect ability or bonuses to species, I kind of like the idea of making it per background, but the way one D&D is doing it where it's like, make your own background and then determine what the pluses are, it does kind of just feel like you're just adding a plus two or a plus one wherever you want it. Yep. So why not work that into the the baseline of your ability scores to begin with instead of making you pretend that it's attached to the background? <laughs> yeah, I think my only hesitation on it is it's like, so quite a few years ago, they decided at my job they were no longer going to give hourly employees a bonus. Mm-hmm. But to be kind about it, what they did is they took what was supposed to be our bonus and increased our hourly wage by it, which was really nice at the time. But at the time, I pointed out, you know, in a few years, people are going to start complaining that hourly people don't get a bonus because no one's going to remember this happened. Uh huh. <laughs> and sure enough, over the last year and a half, people have started to complain that hourly employees don't get a bonus. So my concern about this is that it's going to feel like we're not getting that extra. So I would probably prefer to have the just as part of doing your stats. At the end, just add plus two to one and plus one to another. Mm-hmm. But it really is negligible. I just, there is psychological perceptions built into some of this. I did think it was funny because I read some people that read through the document saying, oh, they're increasing the baseline assumed power for um, point by and array. And I was like, no, they aren't. They're just working it in earlier into the process. I really like what they're doing with, species and splitting that into heritage and lineage like i think it's very important with the history of race in D that they get away from the idea that because you are an elf you are always good with a longsword because that's not necessarily a good thing but i also think that trying to rework every ancestry into only getting stuff that you would get from being born into a certain species has been tricky for them because it is hard for them now to tell the story that Yeah, if you grow up in a dwarven settlement, you can learn stuff that other dwarves may not have learned, but most dwarves will learn certain things because there is a culture there. Yeah. And I like that this kind of brings that back in there. And I immediately was thinking about there's all sorts of things talking about how like like in the Forgotten Realms, they used to talk about how you have mountain dwarves that have been raised in Waterdeep that have never been you know part of their clan and you can do dwarf as your uh, lineage and then have human as your heritage and that's that character right there and i i really like that yeah i like that a lot too changing feats to talents i don't know why they changed the title but i'm fine with it i mean talents actually kind of sounds better than feats it's just we've had feats as a term since third edition we've had a term feat for 23 years (laughs) yeah i mean talent actually kind of makes more sense for what they are (laughs) yeah Adding a talent to the backgrounds, is, it's already what they're doing in one D&D, so I mean, it's not a radical shift there. I mean, it's actually what they've already been doing 
before 1D&D because a lot of the new backgrounds they've been mentioning like in the Dragonlance book and places like that have been doing that. So as far as getting rid of traits, ideals, bonds, and flaws, I like having more details for a character's backstory, but I also don't think the way those were implemented ever did a lot for that. It was a really great idea that was not implemented very well and ends up not being used very often. And I have a feeling that that reason for adventuring might stick in people's minds since it's the only thing that you're generating from a backstory standpoint a little bit more than those four things. Well, and I have a, a long-standing crusade against characters who don't want to be adventurers, heroes, and end up being reluctant adventurers that the GM has to drag through the story because the player is constantly pushing again. No, no, no. Right up front. Why is your character here doing this? Yeah. Why is your character out adventuring? It can be for any reason. It's because they want to avenge somebody. It's because <laughs> they want gold. It's because they want glory. It's because they're curious. You know, why are they here? Why are they doing these things? As far as organizing the talents, this actually surprised me that they did that, where they organized them into the three categories. Mm -hmm. They didn't say this expressly. They were just saying that certain classes will be restricted to certain types, but I'm assuming... Your casters are going to have access to the magic ones. The fighter types are going to have access to martial. And then you're probably going to have like bards and rogues and people that have access to technical. I'm really wondering if certain classes are going to get access to multiple ones, because that seems like it would make sense. Yeah, I mean, this is one I'm going to have to reserve judgment on until I see what they do with it. I think that packet this Friday is probably going to show some of that too because i believe they're going to have some of the classes in it the only thing that really lets you break that though apparently is your background your background you get whatever is in there and the background you're not restricted so if you have a background that gives you something technical and you're not a technical person you at least got that feat that's in there or like somebody does the the magical initiate type of background that gives them a spell okay they've got a cantrip they can cast so yeah i don't know how to feel about that one I guess I kind of want to see it in play first. Okay, moving on. The uh, one D&D document recently covered druids and paladins. So in this document, druids have a template when they wild shape. Instead of using specific animal stat blocks, they don't get any extra hit points with this. A lot of druid abilities have been spread out across dead levels, but some of that shifts those abilities later into the level chain than they were. A lot of the features focused on wild shape. The subclass they presented was Circle of the Moon, and it gave a lot of elemental flavor to the whole thing, moving it down to six level, basically turning your wild shape into a Pokemon. <laughs> um, we'll talk about the Pokemon we had in our playtest. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And there's damage types replacing counts as magical weapon. Uh, this got a little fuzzy. With paladins, they weren't changed as much. They can't smite more than once per turn now. They get to cast spells in the subclass once without using spell slots, as well as getting to summon a mount for free. And we're not going to discuss this now, because we're now going to talk about our one D&D playtest session where we tested this document. Although I did want to bring up, I had one thing that I forgot about the Druid. They did change Wild Shape into Channel Nature so that it matches up with Channel Divinity for Paladins and yes. Clerics now. 
So wild shape is a subcategory of channel nature. There's not a lot that you can do with it otherwise. Okay, so for our playtest that we got together, I spent way too much time entering in all this stuff into uh, Roll20 <laughs> over the weekend so we could do this. We had a tiefling of the uh, Shathonic, uh, which means, you know, the neutral evil fiend types. That was a rogue uh, that was 10th level. We had a gnome ranger that was the hunter ranger that was 10th level. We had a dragonborn bard. Larry was awesome. College of Lore, 10th level. We had a Dwarf Paladin, Oath of Devotion, 10th level, and a Halfling Druid, Circle of the Moon, 10th level. So everybody had the subclass that they've given them so far. Yeah. Because I can't just do a playtest and not do story, Tasha sends all the PCs to run loudly through the Feywild to follow a star in the sky to a portal on the other side of the Feywild. And essentially, this is to provide a distraction for the Elder Elemental Eye for reasons. We weren't asked. If we were willing to do this. <laughs> no. She was very polite about it, but she did not ask if we were willing to do this. Yeah, I don't picture Tasha asking a lot. <laughs> I kind of picture her doing things and maybe asking forgiveness later if she has to. <laughs> but I also got to, you know, roleplay Tasha, which I wanted to do too. <laughs> the first thing that they ran into, because I wanted to experiment with making the boss fight come first, I dropped them into a Jabberwock's lair. <laughs> so, uh... Man, that Jabberwock's uh, burble locked down the rogue hard because it's a charisma save. I felt bad. The rogue didn't get to do much until the very end of the fight. Jabberwock was doing lots of damage, and one of the things that I wanted to point out is it did a lot of damage to the druid because the druid was kind of being a frontline fighter because they were trying to get use out of that wild shape. They turned into a large fire bunny. <laughs> large bunny on fire. Yep. <laughs> it was great. Everybody was enjoying the giant fire bunny. And the Jabberwock actually managed to recharge its fiery glare. Basically, a Jabberwock, instead of breathing fire like a normal dragon, it shoots lasers out of its eyes. <laughs> and it did that twice. And um, then after the party beheaded the Jabberwock in its gizzard, which I determined it had a gizzard because that's the kind of DM <laughs> I am, they found some unidentified beads. Like, I mean, you got to have reasons for the treasure. <laughs> So these were things stuck in the gizzard that fell out when we chopped its head off. Yeah, and when we find out what they were, it makes sense that a Jabberwock would eat these things, and it also makes sense that this happens in the Feywild all the time, you know. <laughs> the next encounter that we had was a Yethound pack, which if you're not familiar with Yethounds, they're large hounds with, like, human faces that can fly and howl and make you scared. But they also do extra damage to you if you are frightened, which is an important point for this encounter. <laughs> Because the party was mounted, the druid decided next time around to turn into a flaming horse instead of a flaming bunny and carried some people on its back. And then because it's free, the paladin summoned a giant goat. I mean, we figured we needed to run through the Feywild. Mm -hmm. Let's run on some mounts. And I figured since they were not on foot and they were moving a little bit faster, they would have more time to prepare for the Yethound. So I gave them a round to do whatever they could get done in a round before the Yethounds closed on them. Basically, the Druid was afraid and got surrounded by the Yethounds, but thankfully the Paladin's aura suppressed that fear because one of the Yethounds rolled a crit, and since it was in roll 20, we got to see what the crit would have looked like if it also got to do the crit psychic damage. Yeah. It would have been very mean to that Druid, so it was good that the Paladin suppressed that fear aura. <laughs> it, it would have dropped the Druid. Yeah. I mean, it was literally like the druid was feared, the paladin moved in, and then the F-hound went that critted. Mm -hmm. It would have been bad. 
it was very good um, tactical placement <laughs> to avoid the worst thing that could have happened there. And then the last encounter that they had on their way out, a Fomorian and his two uh, ogre chain brute friends were um, going to charge a toll to leave. <laughs> Through an interesting chain of events, they offered one of the ogres the beads, which they had not identified yet. The ogre, being an ogre, decided to bite down on it to see what it was. It was a beat of force. The ogre blew its teeth out. We rolled for initiative. <laughs> I felt bad for him. Yes. <laughs> I mean, we still took him out, but that was why I didn't care about his friend getting away at the end. Yeah. This encounter, the druid didn't seem to rely as much on wild shape and just kind of laid into their controller role because there was a lot of keeping the Fomorian from getting any closer than they wanted the Fomorian to get to anybody else. Anybody that was near the Fomorian was going there on purpose, not because the Fomorian could catch up with anyone, which meant basically the paladin and the rogue ran up to it to uh, fight it. But first there was an insect plague that hit <laughs> both of them. The paladin dropped the abjure foes. Abjure foes is interesting, and I don't know how I feel about it, but we'll get into that here in a minute. <laughs> it's basically you can turn anybody that isn't you, isn't your party. You can burn a channel divinity and turn whoever. So the ogre and the Fomorian were both afraid, but then the uh, the insect plague injured the Fomorian, so he snapped out of it. But the ogre, the other ogre just kept going. It didn't take damage, and it said, sorry, boss, <laughs> I'll check on you later. Just kept moving on out of the encounter. <laughs> and um, basically, yeah, and then we had Grasping Vine and Ice Storm, which just kept the Fomorian from going anywhere yeah. that the party didn't want him to go. And the paladin finished them off. In in an opening round, though, Fomorians, who have a much better range on their vision-based attack than uh, Medusa's have. The hell? <laughs> it gave our gnome ranger the evil eye, and it triggered the curse of the evil eye. So not only did it do psychic damage, but it also kind of uh, mutated the gnome so that they were taking disadvantage for anything involving strength or dex. But the bard got to uh, step in and use Greater Restoration to get them back in the fight. And our Fomorian did not last very long. They managed to make it out of the uh, the Feywild. Nobody died this time, and they ended up having tea with Tasha. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully Larry got his, his autograph. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was wondering, like, what we picked up from this playtest. I don't think we learned a whole lot about the Rogue, other than that the Rogue pretty much still plays like the Rogue currently plays in 5e. I think the only thing we picked up is that the, in relation to the rogue, the rogue needed a magical weapon. Yes. And the rules in the DMG for giving magic weapons to characters starting at a higher level sucks. We haven't seen any 1 D&D changes to the DMG yet, but yes, according to the high magic campaign, this I was looking at the high magic campaign suggestion, you get one rare magic item. That does not seem right to me at all. <laughs> it is not in tier until tier three or four that that high magic campaign assumes you're getting more magic items than the average campaign. And I would contend that even the average magic campaign, if you're just now getting a magic weapon at this level, that seems really weird. Yeah. I mean, you show me a 10th level character that has been played since first or third level that doesn't have at least two, probably three attuned magical items. Yeah. It, it just, it doesn't jive with the way the game actually is played. But speaking of magic weapons, we touched on this before, and this is something that's very weird to me in the design of 1D&D. &D. It feels like they are very much trying to get away from 
saying that things that uh, magic weapons overcome you know resistance or immunity to magic weapons in other words they don't necessarily want to say your attacks at this level count as magic weapons they want to say you're now doing force damage so of course you're doing damage to them because not bludgeoning slashing or or piercing damage i think on one hand maybe from a storyline standpoint somebody is saying well what does it mean if this item is magical isn't it more evocative if you're saying that you're harming it because this thing is using a magical plane of force but from a rules standpoint i think it's really clunky because yeah i i don't know it's going to depend a lot on what they do with monsters yeah because i can tell you it really sucks to have a and this is from regular 5e D&D. Mm-hmm. It really sucks to have a character that you want to have focused on doing unarmed attacks and discover you're going to be useless for half of the combats you're in after 5th level because your fists aren't magical weapons yet and everything requires magic. Did we learn anything new about the bard? I learned that I loved Lucky Larry. <laughs> Since you were running Larry, Larry was our dragonborn. I I really liked him. It didn't take long. Larry was a lot of fun to play because I I played him as an enthusiastic fanboy who loved Tasha (laughs) and would prefer to hide in the bushes during combat. As far as the actual class, he was more useful than the sixth level version and the third level version, but he was still a weak link in the party as far as things like that went. I mean, I, I got some useful things in there, like when he was able to cast Greater Restoration on the Ranger. He did a few other things here or there that were useful. Tenth level, he still only had four uses of Bardic Inspiration. Yeah. I am not a fan of the way they are limiting some of these class abilities. Yes, he would have only had four if it was based on Charisma Modifier, it's very disappointing to have it based on your proficiency modifier because it just feels too few. I don't want my bard players to be hoarding their bardic inspiration. And we also discovered that there was a point where the paladin had one hit point left after a attack from the Fomorian. And Larry's a bard. Larry has some healing spells. I'm going to use my bardic inspiration to heal you. Wait, what do you mean I'm 10th level and I'm only healing 1d8? <laughs> yeah, 1d8. That's, that's it. it. Not 1d8 plus charisma modifier, not 2d8, not just 1d8 at 10th level. And I don't know if you've seen a Fomorian stat block, but I don't think that healing would have done anything to keep the paladin still on their feet if that Fomorian hit them again at that point. No, it was more for the psychological help of having... A few more hit points than one. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And to make Larry feel good about helping. I'm helping. I think that was the big takeaway from the Bard is they felt more useful, but they felt more useful because they have spell slots. Yes. And yes, that is part of the class, but it didn't feel like there's much special about being a Bard other than that you have spell slots. And that feels really bad for the Bard. We actually talked a fair amount about how... And this is even relevant to the 5th edition version of the Bard. Mm -hmm. I miss the Bard having songs they could play in combat that boosted people, Mm -hmm. that helped people. Like, I miss that. I I miss that from 3rd edition. I don't remember if 4th edition had it or not. I think the most Bardy thing 
that wasn't just, you know, you have spells was when you cast cutting words the one time when there, you know, you knew if they, they only hit by one point. So cutting words would ab- ac- absolutely keep them from getting hit. Yeah, I told the Jabberwock he wasn't a real dragon. <laughs> That's the problem. The, the spells felt more useful, but the actual abilities don't feel like they're scaling anywhere near like what some of the other classes are. So how about the ranger? I wanted to do all the ones that existed before before we get to the brand new ones. I enjoyed the ranger. I enjoyed the interplay of Hunter's Prey and Hunter's Mark. Mm-hmm. It made me feel like I was actually doing some significant damage. The ranger was a crossbow mm-hmm. ranger doing ranged damage. For the most part, I was happy with the ranger. There wasn't anything that threw me off. I felt like she was useful in combat. Mm-hmm. She did reasonable damage i felt all that was good the only thing that i thought and this is just me and we'll get into this as we get to the paladin i thought the ranger felt pretty good you know just from watching it from the dm side but it's also really weird to me that the paladin they bent over backwards to say well since you're going to use your spell slots to smite we're going to give you a free casting of all of these things that you get from your your subclass and the ranger it's still like yeah we made the ranger better, but you still have to use your spell slots for Hunter's Mark. Yeah. You don't get anything extra. <laughs> if you're going to use your spell slots to do Hunter's Mark, you're not using it for anything else. They might fix that mm-hmm. with a revision of the ranger, which I hope they do. It's interesting because I keep coming back to, they've even said this now in one of the videos, that they're going to make Eldritch Blast just a class feature of the Warlock. And between what they did with the Paladin and what they're doing with Eldritch Blast, it's like why not just make Hunter's Mark a thing that the ranger can do instead of making it a spell? (laughs) The only other class that could get it would be the druid? Yeah. And, like, why? I I actually, just for fun, when I made the druid, I gave that to them as a spell just to see if Eric was going to use it or not. And it never came up, even with him meleeing as much as he did. Moving into the druid, if you're okay with that. Yeah, oh yeah. The druid... It's not quite the same level of they done you wrong like they did to the bard, but the druid has some issues. I'm really curious to see if the druid would feel as bad as the bard if we had done the third level and the sixth level with the bard with the druid too. To me, a druid has always been they are the a spellcaster geared towards nature, mm-hmm. and a lot of the focus of the way. They built the druid, even before you mix in the Circle of the Moon subclass, felt super focused on Wild Shape. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't jive with every single druid I've ever seen him play. And bless his heart, Eric kept trying to make this matter. Yeah. One of the abilities they give to the Circle of the Moon druid is you can make an offhand attack in addition to the multi-attack that you get for whatever form you're in. But the problem is, the offhand attack does not do elemental damage, which means if you're fighting something that is immune or resistant to non-magical damage, you're not getting elemental damage, so it doesn't do anything. He got a crit on his offhand attack, and it did nothing. Yes, and as an offhand attack, the only thing that that really does is you get to use your wisdom as your strength when you are in animal form. So it meant he got to do, what, five points of damage instead of, you know, maybe two. That whole, like, yeah, you get to do an offhand attack, too. It's like, that's a great benefit. Thanks. <laughs> <It's> like, 
I understand the reason why they changed Wild Shape to you can choose a land form, you can choose an air form, you can choose a sea form. Mm-hmm. Instead of, you know, these are specific animals you can change into. Yeah. It alleviates a lot of the the overhead of trying to find the right stat block, playing with that stat mm-hmm. block, but I don't think they made those alternative forms attractive or interesting enough. That's one of the things I was talking about is one hand, I don't think you want people looking through a player's hand or a monster manual trying to find, oh, I want this stat block. I don't think that's a good mode of play. But at the same time, some of what people do as druids is they problem solve. Like this animal form can do this very specific thing that I want to be able to do. And these stat blocks, if unless the thing that you need to do is swim and breathe water or fly, you're not solving any problems no. with these things differently. Um, I think there needs to be another axis that you choose. I don't know what you would call it, but, you know, like maybe a protector land-based form or a predator land-based form, something that gives at least a little bit more choice and a little bit variance to that template that you're putting on the druid. And also the hit point buffer, give them a hit point buffer of some kind. They are handing out temporary hit points left and right with every other feature that they redesign in one D&D, but the druid gets absolutely nothing for turning into an elephant. I understand that they're taking away the damage sponge aspect of the current druid because currently as play stands, you wild shape into an animal, you have that animal's hit points. Mm -hmm. When your hit points are depleted in that form, you turn back into your natural form with all of the hit points you originally had in that form. It's basically a hit point sponge. Mm -hmm. But they fixed problems without giving us a reason to enjoy the problem fixes. When we got to that last fight, Eric was looking at, you know, the fact that he could cast healing spells because they made them abjuration and you can cast abjuration while you're an animal if you're circle of the moon but he ended up not doing it he just turned back into a halfling and started using his area control spells because that made more sense at one point he wanted to use the ability that lets you summon an animal companion which is basically just casting find familiar and then after looking at what it actually did it just didn't seem like it was worth burning a channel no nature ability to do and then he looked at the the healing blossoms and that's another ability that does not scale well at higher levels so it's like i'm not gonna burn a channel nature just to do this little tiny amount of hit point healing i know what eric wanted was to be able to be in animal form and still cast spells Mm -hmm. and i think they get to do that at a much higher level 17th level it's just like 17th level I can kind of get that, but the other thing that he wanted to be able to do was, okay, I triggered my shape-shifting, but can I turn back into a halfling and then back to the animal form without constantly spending additional panel divinities? And you don't get to do that. And also the weird thing to me is that's not a circle of the moon thing. That is a druid thing that they put at 13th level where you can trigger a wild shape and then use a bonus action to shift back and forth. So like this round you can cast spells and then this round you can be an animal. I would be fine with that coming in to Circle of the Moon at lower than 13th level, but I think that should be a Circle of the Moon thing. That doesn't seem like a thing every druid wants to do. That seems like something the druid that specialized in shapeshifting wants to do. Yeah, like I said, that they, they put too much of an emphasis on the wild shape mm-hmm. for the general druid class. and Yeah. This makes me really interested to see what Black Flag and some of the other new games that are being worked on are going to do with the classes, because I'm not liking some of what they're doing here. 
Yeah, it's almost oversimplifying some choices that I don't really like. Yeah. So what did we learn about the Paladin? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the Paladin was okay. (laughs) There were no huge red flags. It was disappointing not to be able to smite multiple times. They still felt pretty effective, though. (laughs) Yeah, they, they, they felt pretty effective. She did her job. She stood there and she took damage and she protected her people. I mean, I talked about this. I don't think it's game breaking. It just feels like paladins. I, I, I have never heard anyone say that paladins are a weak class in 5e. And I maybe have heard some people say that they wish they would do something else with their spell slots other than smiting. But then again, I ver- rarely heard someone say that after they just did like 78 points of damage to something. So I think the funny thing is with them handing out all those free castings of all the stuff they get from their subclass. I actually would be fine with just the the summon steed that they give them for free. I think that's a fine one to give them for free to cast it once a day. I don't know that they need the rest of them and they didn't really come up that much. Yeah. The steed kind of makes sense because if you if you can't use a steed somewhere, you're not going to summon it anyway, you know? Yeah. And that's kind of a traditional paladin thing. So I don't have a problem with the, the paladin. I just don't understand the logic behind all of these other classes seeming to be like nerfed a little bit. And then the paladin being, well, we can't take anything away from the paladin except smiting more than once per turn, but let's give them more stuff. (laughs) Yeah. And paladins, by the way, can smite on their off turn, though. They can't smite more than once on their turn, but they can still smite on an attack of opportunity, which they took away from the rogues. Oh, as a rogue, as a rogue player, I'm I'm offended by that. Yes. The, the paladin lobby got got their uh I mean it, <laughs> got it, their wishes in there. Admittedly, we have not seen revisions of the previously released four classes. That is also something about the structure of this playtest. I really wonder what the schedule is going to look like because this is supposed to be coming out in 2024. Yeah. We haven't seen all of the classes yet. We have a crap ton of subclasses we haven't seen yet and we have not seen a second round of classes yet yeah i am having a hard time seeing all of this stuff getting out in time to have it get any meaningful thing and it's still making that 2024 thing unless we're really pushing it back to the very end of 2024 i know in the cleric document they also included the revisions to various species Rest in peace, Ardling. We loved you well for as little as we knew about you. (laughs) They released some revisions of the species. What I wish they would do is like, okay, here is our main new document Mm -hmm. with the new information in it. And here is a secondary document, which includes our revisions of stuff we have previously released. So you can play all of these together to see how they work. There were things they did with the Paladin that make me think they're going to make similar changes to the ranger yeah but they haven't released that yet so we don't know they've been talking about going to slightly less often but bigger documents but i almost think that yeah they need to do two documents like here's the new stuff here's the revised stuff yeah give us the revised stuff in a separate document that'll make me happy Mm -hmm. anyway welcome to the dungeon master's workshop moving on to our dungeon master's workshop (laughs) <laughs> Since our playtest session was at 10th level, we started discussing high-level D&D play. Most of us haven't had characters that went beyond 12th level, with a few exceptions, and we thought we'd touch on that a bit here in the workshop. So what do you consider to be high-level play? So my knee-jerk reaction is to say it's 15th level or higher, 
But when I look at where people leave off playing their characters, most of the people I talk to, they get people up to about 12th level and that's the end. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of hard to say for sure. Like 12th level doesn't feel high level when you look at 20 possible levels, but it functionally kind of feels like high level when you look at how things actually work. Like that's when travel and movement types, like being able to fly or swim without any real effort and returning people from the dead and removing conditions like by using an action instead of, you know, taking hours to do it. That's where that kind of all comes in there is around that 12th level mark. And that's where that shift kind of feels like it happens for me. Yeah, I think there's a real transition in the feel of the game from about 9th to 12th level. Mm -hmm. It changes the tone. I think it definitely happens once you're hitting 12th level, but I think GMs definitely start feeling those changes once the characters hit 9th level and above. Well, and it's interesting in the playtest, I noticed that even with the bard, like, I thought, ooh, this is going to be really bad for the Gnome Ranger. And it's like, oh, not really. We have somebody that has greater restoration. Yeah, we have greater <laughs> restoration, and it only takes an action. I was actually look. that was specifically what I was looking at when I was reading the spell. I'm like, how long does this take to cast? Because, sure, we could wait until the combat's done and then cast it. And then I'm like, nope, it's an action. I can do this in combat. Okay. Yep. And I mean, that's that wasn't necessarily one D&D. That's just D&D in general. The spell slots are just what they are from 5e. So what is the highest level character you have played in previous editions? So the highest level character I had in AD&D, which got converted from 2nd edition, you know, from AD&D to AD&D 2nd edition, was my 13th level ranger. I am still salty because he lost his plate armor in that transition. <laughs> and also his favorite enemy damage went from plus 13 damage to any humanoid or giant to plus four to a very specific kind of creature. But I did pick up a bear as a cohort. So, I mean, I guess that's a good trade-off. <laughs> <laughs> so when we first talked about doing this topic, I started thinking about all of my D&D characters. And I just had to laugh because I don't think I had a first edition or second edition character make it to fifth level. <laughs> Most of them died either around third level or the campaign died on the vine around that same level. <laughs> Beja, the first edition magic user thief who became a second edition bard, might have made it to fifth level. <laughs> I honestly don't remember, and I don't have any of those character sheets anymore. In third level, Jenshana made it to eighth level, and in fourth edition, Z got to twelfth level. <laughs> what about fifth edition? What level have you gotten to in fifth edition? I had a twelfth level uh, grave cleric that played through Prince of the Apocalypse. I've talked about her before, but Zalus actually made it to 20th level, but it was on the bullet train of Milestone XP to get us to the end <laughs> of Tyranny of the Dragon Queen. At a more sedate, reasonable pace, Dove is currently at 11th level. <laughs> I did make a, a one-shot Herbal Granger for James Intercaso's Planet of the Tarasque that he ran at Gamehole Con, where he <laughs> let all of us make our own 20th level characters. So. I didn't play all those levels in between, but I'm, I still have them sitting on D&D Beyond because I enjoyed that, that character. <laughs> so why do you think high-level play ends up stalling out in D&D? Um, I think it's always important for DMs to be able to improvise, and I think it's wrong when uh, DMs plan out too much you know, for exactly what they think the PCs are going to be able to do. We've talked about this before, that you know you want to 
create challenges but not solutions. But I think the problem with high-level play is the PCs don't have a lot of meaningful consequences when they come up with their solutions for things. Like we were talking about, it's a spell slot. Like, it's a spell slot and an action. That's not Mm -hmm. a major consequence for fixing a big problem. So it's not so much that the DM is having to improvise. It's that the DM has to improvise all the time. Because anybody could potentially fix a major problem with a single spell slot or a single action on every one of their turns. I don't even think it's so much that DMs can't do it, but I think it becomes exhausting, especially doing it as a campaign. It's a lot of work. I think the power curve in D&D makes it hard for GMs to keep up with the player's abilities and still provide them with challenging obstacles that still fit within the framework of the world. Mm -hmm. We had this conversation in my Eberron game where it was like, you know, oh, don't worry about it. You can. So one of the the rest people they rescued, I said his hands had not formed back to their normal shape after they cast lesser restoration on him. Mm -hmm. So they stopped the poison from continuing the transition. But for flavor, I said his hands still look scaly and like claws. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is something he's going to have to live with. And one of the players was like, ah, just get somebody to cast greater restoration. You'll be fine. <laughs> and I'm like, that's not that easy. That's yeah. not, you know, that's not something any everyone is going to have access to. And he's like, just find one of the high level clerics in your town. <laughs> um, that's and like we had to have a conversation about power levels and, you know, the fact that the players are probably going to be the ones to reach that level mm-hmm. before anyone this guy comes in contact with will. Yeah. The higher in level the characters get, the more you get that where they're moving beyond what is normal in the setting. What's normal for me is not what's normal for other people in the setting. Yeah, and it it can make it really hard to maintain a sense of verisimilitude in the game mm-hmm. and make the players feel like they're actually still connected to the game world without feeling like they're way beyond everyone else around them. And I think that is, as Jared just said, it gets exhausting as a GM to try and keep up with creating content for your players to engage with at those levels. By the way, I, I appreciate that you used a word that I only knew the definition of when I was younger because it was in the first edition DMG. So there is similitude. When did you learn how to pronounce it? Because oh. that's one of those things. You read a word, you don't necessarily know how to pronounce it. I saw so many things in D&D rulebooks and Fantastic Four comics that I knew the word, but I had no idea how to pronounce it. And the first time I said them out loud, it was like, that's a little weird. We're going to cost the chasm to get to the citatal. <laughs> oh, goodness. <laughs> anyway... So what do you see as some of the differences between high-level D&D play and what might be high-level play for other role-playing games? One of the big things that happens in other RPGs versus D&D is that PCs get wider abilities. In other words, they get more tools that they can use in a circumstance, but those tools don't necessarily do amazingly differently scaled things. They just Mm -hmm. have more tools to choose from. And the difference with D&D is you do get deeper tools. I mean, that's one of the things we were talking about in the playtest is the things that didn't feel right are the things that don't scale for the level. Yep. It's not just that you can do this certain thing. It's that if you can't do this thing and do X number of hit points, it doesn't feel right for that level. And you don't have that as much in other 
RPGs. Like, if you suddenly have a character in a different RPG that can stabilize somebody that's dying, that's a new ability. That's not something that needs to scale. Whereas in D&D, something like that might be, oh, I can only bring them back to life if they've been dead for 10 days. Now it's... <laughs> I think the power curve in D&D is very different from most other games. Yeah. In other games, the players gain more abilities as they gain more experience. There's not as much of a difference between the capabilities of a new character and that experienced character. Like in, in Savage Worlds, there is a difference between a novice character and a veteran level character. Mm -hmm. You could still have a game with those two characters in the same session and not have it feel completely unbalanced. Whereas in a D&D game, if you had a second level character and a ninth level character in the same fight, that second level character better be hiding behind a rock. Yeah. Well, and I do think fifth edition is better than, than say, third edition at that. Yeah. Um, or fourth edition, for that matter. Because within a, a tier, like, I have played a first level character in a group with fourth level characters and still felt like I contributed because of the way the math works in 5e. It wasn't impossible for me to do things. I just, as you said, I don't want to be the one getting hit. <laughs> right. <laughs> I might contribute to taking the monster down, but I need to be careful about it. Do you think some of the high level design in 1D&D, where they're like moving capstone abilities down a few levels and adding epic feats in at 20th level instead, is going to make a difference? Nope. <laughs> yeah, nope. I really don't. And it's weird to me because... Most of what they're tinkering and being really enthusiastic about, you know, we can't wait for players to get here, are things that are still not coming into the game until like 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th level. Yeah. And I really think you need to deal with like 12th through 15th and make that more attractive before you worry about tinkering with the very end game of what you're actually designing for tier four play. To be completely honest, I don't think it matters at all what changes they make to the characters. Unless they add more support for GMs to make getting to and playing through those levels viable, yep. you're still going to have a lot of campaigns that wrap up around 12th level because it just gets exhausting mm -hmm. trying to put the game together for your players the higher level they get. So no, I don't know that I want to run a game at those levels. That's a really good point, too, because I don't know that there's a lot of players that are saying, man, I'm tired of playing this character at 12th level. But there are players that read from their DM, man, our DM is getting burned out. Yes. This campaign isn't as much fun as it used to be, not because they're a bad DM, but because they are getting really burned out on dealing with all these things that I can do. So I don't think you need to change as much about what the player side can do. You need to make it easier and easier for the DM to keep their, their enthusiasm going at those levels. Yeah, I do think with 1D&D, I don't like that they're taking a lot of the cool abilities and moving them later mm -hmm. into level progression. Like, no, I, wa I want to do the thing. Yeah, I like that, you know, the 13th level being able to shift in and out of things. It's like, that's yeah. kind of just beyond where that would be a cool time to get that ability. Yeah, it's like, I, I, I don't remember the specifics, but I know there were things the bard when we looked at it it's like why is that now 11th level why sh why did they move that from 7th level 7th level was actually attainable and interesting and fun to get and i really think anytime you move something even if it only looks like you're moving at a few levels i think what you need to ask yourself is you got this ability in tier 2 
Like, that is a certain type of gameplay for Tier 2, and you have now moved that ability into Tier 3. Yeah. You know, that that's more than just a few levels. That's shifting it into this other, you know, play style that we were talking about there. And is it actually going to matter when you do that? The other thing that I was going to touch on really quickly, because it's a weird thing from the Paladin that I hadn't really felt from some of the other design, and I'd forgot about it until we were talking about high-level play. Because of the way they redesigned subclasses, Paladin subclasses always got that 20th level ability from the subclass, where they basically became an avatar of their oath. And sometimes the abilities weren't mechanically that awesome, but just the way they kind of described it as, you are now the embodiment of someone that is defending your oath, was a really neat story beat, and that's gone now, because you get it at 14th level. It doesn't feel like it's, you know, I am now the ultimate expression of my oath, now it's like, oh, uh, that's another thing I get to do. Yeah. (laughs) And part of that's because the 20th level thing that they're trying to make cool is not a class-specific thing, it is everybody gets these epic boons now. Well, and I, I suppose they are moving what was the 20th level ability down to 18th level for the classes, but those just haven't been that exciting. Anyway, do you think D&D needs to have stats for levels all the way up to 20th level? I kind of do, and for multiple reasons. 20 is kind of an arbitrary thing, because depending on the edition of D&D, it might be 36 <laughs> levels or 30 levels. But I do think you kind of want to have more levels statted out than people usually reach. Part of that is just to provide context. Like, you always know that somebody that reaches 20th level is damn near a demigod. Yep. And you may not want to play in that space, but knowing that it exists actually does something for the game. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that I've noticed, this is something that comes via our friends at Critical Role. I say friends, it's parasocial, they don't know me. <laughs> but <laughs> So many parasocial relationships. <laughs> But one of the things that I think is neat is campaign one and two both wrapped up with epic storylines, but they have played those characters again at really high levels for like one shots. And I think that is something that is a neat thing that you can do with those higher levels. Like even if you may not want to play at, you know, 18th through 20th level every week, you know, week in and week out, it may be something you want to dust off every six months to do a special story. Like I, as a GM may not have the bandwidth with everything else going on in my life, to set a campaign that gets everyone from 13th to 18th, 13th, 20th, whatever it is. But I can totally be like, oh yeah, I've got a neat idea. Level your characters up to, you know, 18th level. Let me know what they've been... Let's decide on what they've been doing for the last five years, and let's go into this scenario, because that could be a lot of fun. I definitely think D&D needs that progression to that demigod level. Because it has always been a game that included level progression. And if you take that away, it's not really D&D anymore. Even if most groups don't ever get to that epic level of storytelling, I think they still need to be there. Yeah, I definitely, definitely agree with that. No time for rest, you two. Get on with your downtime research. Every episode... We're going to look at something related to D&D that we want to pass along to our listeners. Um, It might be products, websites, videos, or podcasts, but it will always be something that we think will enhance your D&D experience. I don't know why I'm using this voice. Do you know, Ange? (laughs) I don't don't know. know. Maybe it's the leftover Jabberwock. (laughs) Anyway, hey, look, I'm pimping another YouTube video. (laughs) I mean, let's be fair. I spend a lot of time on YouTube watching videos in the background. Um, sometimes they're about 
murder and true crime, and sometimes they're about gaming. <laughs> the Dungeon Dudes recently uh, did an episode called Five Homebrew Abilities for Boss Monsters in D&D, and I thought this was a really cool video talking about some ways you can spice up your boss monster encounters, regardless of the level of that boss monster encounter. And I thought it was a pretty cool thing, and it's worth a watch. We will have a link in the show notes. What I'm going to bring up this time around, if you haven't heard of it yet, the Worlds Beyond Number podcast is an actual play that is very story-focused. Um, it has lots of uh, very specific editing and sound effects to emphasize the ongoing narrative, and it features some pretty well-known people from the actual play world, including Brennan Lee Mulligan, Abria Iyengar, uh, Lou Wilson, and Erica Ishii. And not only are those all people that I once again have very close parasocial ties to, <laughs> but <laughs> the witch class that Erica is playing in that game was partially designed by Branda Stoddard, friend of the show, who I actually do know, and it's not parasocial. It's not a parasocial case. relationship. I've gamed with him. <laughs> so if you follow the Patreon, they release fireside chats to uh, go into some of the behind the scenes information. And they also have a whole section called the Children's Campaign, which is a series of episodes showing how all of these characters first met. And then the regular campaign jumps ahead several years to when they're an adult. It's been great so far. There's like a, it just launched at the beginning of March and there's a ton of content for this. So I think if you enjoy actual plays, especially if you enjoy story focused actual plays, this is definitely something you're going to want to check out. We are happily part of the Misdirected Mark Productions Network. So we wanted to give a shout out to another MMP show. If you are enjoying our show, also consider checking out Bonus Experience. Monica and her friends explore gameplay and design through the lens of diversity while also sharing some of the dumbest humor gaming has to offer. We have used up all of our resources, even if we are 10th level, so I think it is time for a long rest. I hope this adventure was rewarding for you, and we hope you'll go exploring with us when we start our next adventure.